You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Cade Young. And I'm Katrine Bruner. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, October 25th, 2023. Later in the program, Deep Dive, WFHB and Limestone Post investigate, where we look into issues regarding health, housing, and the environment that directly impact residents of Monroe County. In today's edition, you will hear an archived edition of Deep Dive, the first episode of the series, which digs deeper into the lack of affordable housing in Monroe County. More coming up next. This is the first installment of Deep Dive, WFHB and Limestone Post Investigate, where we look into issues regarding health, housing, and the environment that directly impact residents of Monroe County. This month, we are looking into the housing crisis. Next month, we will address possible solutions. The housing crisis we face is complex, but can be broken down into three main categories. First, there is a high demand for rentals, since Bloomington is a college town. Second, there is a lack of housing options or housing supply due to the 2008 recession, which led to contractors and builders leaving the market and the ones that remained focused mainly on luxury homes to ensure a profit. Third, there is a lack of land available for building outside of Bloomington due to the region's unique karst topography and rural zoning requirements. According to Bloomington's 2020 housing survey, over 60% of renting households and nearly 30% of owner-occupied households in Bloomington are cost-burdened, meaning approximately one-third of their income goes toward their rent and or mortgage. Mary Morgan, who is the Director of Housing Security for the Heading Home Initiative, said that 50% of Monroe County residents are cost-burdened. At the Bloomington Tenant Resource Fair, Morgan shared the impact the current housing situation, high demand, low supply, and high rental prices, has on residents. And we're not unique. Um, This is a national problem. Um, Cost burden residents, over 50% of Monroe County households living in rental housing are spending more than 30% of their income on rent. That's kind of a staggering number. Um, This population is most vulnerable to fall into homelessness. Um, There is a lack of affordable units available for rent. There are a whole host of problems related to that. Uh, Landlords are leased, are are becoming increasingly unlikely to accept vouchers. Um, We have a lot of work to do in that regard. And without intervention, a lot of people who are housing insecure will fall into homelessness. According to Bloomington Housing and Neighborhood Development Director John Zodi, Bloomington has a housing supply problem. He said the city can't keep up with the amount of residents who come to live here. Zodi attributed the influx of people to organizations like Indiana University, Crane, and Catalent. Yes, I mean, I think certainly in the city, we are on the same page and we need more units. We are, you know, 
aggressively trying to develop the Hopewell project, which could add 800 to 1,000 more units of all different types of housing, not just affordable. And so I, I believe, so I've never heard, yes, we have enough housing, yes, we have enough affordable housing. I, I think um, when you have uh, big employers who are moving, you know, you got IU, uh, you've got uh, Crane nearby, you've got Catalunt, who's you know, still adding uh, jobs. Um, you've got that constant influx and people looking and people moving, right? So people, the idea is you don't always stay in your first house forever. You know, I'm an example. I bought a house, owned it for five years, then I sold it and got married, and now I have kids. And, you know, the idea is that you... You move from one house and you build some wealth and maybe move to another one. And the important thing is, is having that supply where people can do that because then that house that you moved out of that may be lower priced is open to someone who needs a more affordable approach and you're able to move to, you know, it's that migratory uh, thing that's important. And that's that's hard to track and it's hard for me to do anything but give you anecdotes about that. But it is true. I mean, I I can speak from personal experience and if a, if a IU hires staff and faculty, you know, they're very interested in where they'll live. We've talked to a number of employers in town who say, yes, we need housing for our workforce, not just people who might qualify for that, that federally subsidized housing, but people in that workforce housing category. And so there are, you know, there are pretty active conversations about how to provide more workforce housing. What is that middle Call it middle missing middle housing is what some people will say, but that's it's not market, not generally market rate. It's not traditionally affordable. It's that middle. Zodi explained that the housing type in Bloomington is primarily comprised of rental units. He said the city works to maintain the quality of the housing stock to the best of their ability. Bloomington is a two-thirds rental community. And as a college town, we have a lot of interest in making sure that our housing is safe and that our housing stock is of quality. And so it's really important that the department and the city government as a whole uh, do as much outreach as we can on, on making sure that people know uh, what that information is, uh, what they need to know as a renter, what they may need to know as a property owner uh, or a manager. And so we like to have those, uh, all those folks work together. Zodi said that since Bloomington is a college town, they need more rental housing and it needs to be affordable. What are we doing to provide more rental housing, not just more units, but provide access to rental housing because Bloomington is about a two-thirds rental community. Clearly, the university plays a huge role in that with the students, but um, we're one of the top or most expensive rental markets in the state in the top five. Zodi also said that although housing prices going up is a good thing for those who are interested in selling their house, for individuals looking to buy one in the city, they are struggling or are simply unable to keep up with the rising prices. We need more affordable housing for a lot of reasons, and I think approaching that um, strategically is important. I think that's what the city's been doing for um, you know the last last six years and more. Um, as um, housing prices have gone up, over the, you know we're starting to see them uh, sort of stabilize right now. But um, housing prices have, been, have gone up, um, so it's been a good market for sellers. Um, buyers has been tough, especially a buyer that may not have, be in a position to. Uh, you know, pay asking price or be in a position to uh, forego an inspection or offer cash or whatever. According to the 2020 housing survey, 60% of renters in the city are housing insecure. Zodi explained what housing insecure means. And sort of the definition of that, um, one of the definitions, let me say, is somebody that's paying more than 30% of their 
monthly income on housing. They could be designated as housing insecure, right? You're paying just too much for housing with everything else you have going on. And so we have a good number of people uh, in, in Monroe County and Bloomington that are, that are doing that. Zodi said that the housing study revealed that Bloomington needs about 2,300 more housing units to provide for the demand. Our housing study that we did a couple of years ago um, calls for a, a lot of additional units of both rental and owner-occupied housing. You know, housing is uh, uh, such a huge component of someone's general security that there are just, you know, we when you're trying to identify a housing gap, you know, how many more units do we need? That number moves. Uh, but the housing study said we needed, um, let's say about 2,300 more units by, by 2030. So that was done in 2020. Zodi said the city is sensitive to the fact that individuals are unable to find a place to live within their budget. Yeah, and so we've got to figure out how to make those rents. You know, it's, it's people who are finding, you know, can you find a, a place to live for seven, eight hundred dollars a month? And and um, that's sort of that threshold that people look at is, you know, whatever it, the, the number moves based on somebody's income and situation, how many bedrooms they need. So that's, you know, we're always sensitive to that. And can they, you know, the voucher, the uh, Section 8 voucher list is, you know, there's a waiting list for that. And we are trying to figure out how to get more, um, more Section 8 tenants in the pipeline. When asked how he would like to see the problem addressed, Zodi said he would like to see more housing being built so that he can tell the residents who called asking for help that there are options available for them. More of it and the ability to always say, when someone calls my office and say, I need this type of housing, say, here it is, <laughs> right? I mean, that's what it is. It's very, you know, this is about, at the end of the day, this is about individual people who need places to live. And when someone calls your office and says, I, I am paying this, I can't pay it anymore. I've got kids, I'm commuting from here. And, you know, uh, that's a, a hit to the pocket. Yeah, it's that it, you're dealing with real people that have a real sense of urgency here. And so that's kind of always mm. riding on my brain and that of a lot of people here. I just can't forget that, right? So I think those are the two things. Like, a, here, here it is. And drive down the street and you see it going up, right? CEO of Habitat for Humanity of Monroe County, Wendy Goodlett, said that it's expensive to build houses in this community. Goodlett attributes the high cost of construction to the rising toll of infrastructure, the lack of suitable land for development in Monroe County, and the value of labor. She said that the cost of constructing homes in Monroe County has increased, and she's seen it firsthand through her work at Habitat for Humanity. Pre-pandemic, I think we were in the probably eighty-five dollars to $95,000 range um, per house closer to 85, um, and now we're at 105, just for the materials and labor for the house. And, and keeping in mind that most of our labor is free. You know, we pay an electrician, we pay a plumber, we pay for the foundation work, and we pay for drywall. And the rest of it we do on our own with volunteers. Goodlett outlined that the concept of the single-family home as the American dream has changed as land becomes more scarce. She said that it's less challenging for local construction companies to build high-end, custom homes on large lots 
compared to building single-family homes. She stressed that Habitat is trying to provide higher-quality housing in response to the conditions she has witnessed due to the instability of the low-income rental market. We do a home interview for every family that we that joins the program. And so we see the conditions that they're living in and what they're paying for those conditions. It's disheartening. I mean, there are some really bad rental units that, you know, they're paying $1,000 or more per month. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to live there. One reason behind the land scarcity in Monroe County is that we have unique karst typography due to our limestone bedrock. According to the National Park Service, karst is, quote, a type of landscape where the dissolving of the bedrock has created sinkholes, sinking streams, caves, springs, and other characteristic features, end quote. Monroe County Commissioner Penny Githens explained that karst features are always evolving, and she explained how that can result in sinkholes, which are not safe to build on or around. I mean, the karsts are, are big sinkholes, right? And they're not necessarily static. They can grow. That's a pretty slow process usually, but, you know, it's because of all the limestone that we have beneath the surface. And those actually, they fill up when it, there's hard rains, and then they're actually little, they're underground streams, basically, that link all these different karst features that we're not even aware of. And so it just makes all the, the underlying ground and bedrock less stable. And then we also have to make sure that people don't try to fill those in. Because again, they're not stable and filling them in doesn't solve the problem. It's not as bad here as it is, say, down in Florida, where they have more of a phosphorus kind of, of thing where whole houses and vehicles will sink into the ground all of a sudden overnight. But uh, we do have to be sensitive to that kind of thing. Another issue related to this is flooding. One thing the commissioners take into consideration is how building more impervious surfaces can lead to more flooding. It is very possible that once a development goes up, the additional runoff can cause flooding issues for surrounding areas. You have to worry about runoff. Uh, anytime there's building, you, you know, you're putting in impervious surfaces. And so that's going to increase flooding. We need to do a better job with uh, drainage all around. Uh, we're seeing that already done in the Clear Creek area. Some of the building that's going on in the southwest part of, of Bloomington. So it is concern of, of existing homeowners in that area. Githens added that one of the problems that contributes to this is that homeowners associations don't always maintain the retention ponds. What we're seeing now is that there are homeowners associations that are not maintaining properly their detention and retention ponds. Um, one is for temporary water runoff, you know, so that runs off more gradually when there's a storm. The other is a, you know, more of a permanent kind of pond kind of setup. So we're trying to figure out ways to work with the HOAs to get things back at the proper level and then making sure that they maintain those going forward. That's one of the solutions that we needed to look at. So it, it's it's difficult um, because things change over time. People don't want to necessarily spend the money. It's a tax, in essence, through the fees that you pay through an HOA to maintain those. And they're self-governing. So they have boards that decide what gets taken care of and how much they assess for each of the people that live in that HOA. Githens also had insight into the zoning regulations throughout the county that can limit the amount of housing density. 
she shared that the county is in charge of preserving the rural landscape that many moved to the area to find. There are people that want to live in a less congested area, and so they have bought a home, a farm, whatever, in the non-urban parts of the county, and they choose that. And so are we going to deprive them of that by just pushing development out further and further and further? When I think about, say, big towns, big towns don't have all these one- and two-story living arrangements, you know? They have things that go up, or they have quadplexes or condos or all kinds of other, you know, arrangements for housing that we don't have very much of here. And so it gets to that sort of that density issue as well. And when you think about it, if you think about environmental challenges that we know we're facing with the climate crisis and stuff like that, people don't have to travel as much if they're living in a denser area. They don't have to travel as much for work. They don't travel as much for for food, for other doctor's appointments, anything like that, uh, recreation even. There's that to consider as well. But it's it's more just honoring the people that live in the areas now. She emphasized that the county does have areas where they welcome new development and home building. Again, it gets back to keeping our commitment to the people that already live in certain areas. But um, we have we have approved some other things. There was a, a small development that we got a request for out in Harrodsburg. And we approved that because we felt that it fit with what was already there and didn't disrupt. You know, it was what people, I think, were almost expecting. And so nobody was going to say, oh, you're you're ruining my life out <laughs> here kind of thing. Um, so, so we have approved some that are pretty dense. Uh, it's not that we are completely against that kind of thing. Githens explained that the commissioners have been trying to keep housing affordable in Monroe County. We have fought the annexation that's going on. And part of that, that is because if these areas are annexed, their property taxes will go up and that makes it less affordable. And some of the properties, um, people are looking at an extra $100 or more a month in property taxes if they're annexed. It's hard also, as you say, say to a developer, okay, we want you to sell so many units at X price. Well, fine, unless you write something a covenant into that deed, the person who's the first purchaser can turn around two years later and sell it for whatever they want. And so it's very difficult to, uh, even if you build affordable housing, to make sure that it stays affordable for people. You can do it differently with rental units, but for people that want home ownership. Githin said there is a lot of growth in Monroe County, but noted the growth around Bloomington and places like Ellettsville. There is growth going on for sure. And we're seeing that, especially in this southern, you know, to the south of Bloomington uh, on the outskirts there. But we're also seeing a lot of development in um, Ellettsville area. And they they continue to annex new areas on a regular basis. So there there's a lot of expansion going on there, not just in Bloomington, with with what with especially with the housing stock. Githens highlighted the importance of planning and building strategically. Even though there is a housing crisis, she is aware of the consequences of putting up too much too fast. We shouldn't be doing a lot of spot rezoning. You know, we should be having planned zoning that people can rely on. I think we also have to be very careful when we talk about housing. I personally, and this is just me, I don't want to see unchecked growth. We do have to stop and say, 
we have right now a decent water supply. Unchecked growth, can we guarantee that we will continue to have that house, the you know water supply that we need for everything? If we have unchecked growth, do we have to start to worry about flooding like we were talking about earlier and what that does to things? Because that disrupts not only people's lives, it tears up roads, it takes down bridges, does all kinds of other things that disrupt our lives. And so I think we we need to, I'm not anti-growth, that's not the, the point here, but I think we have to have, be very careful with what we do with our growth. Chase Tekenton is the director of The Roof an emergency shelter run by New Hope for Families. New Hope for Families seeks solutions for children and families impacted by homelessness in Bloomington. DeKenton said that the crisis of homelessness is getting worse in impacting broader segments of the population than seen previously. Broadly, New Hope is, is only a 10-year-old agency. Responding to family homelessness is a new evolution in, in responding to homelessness because the crisis is getting worse and affecting more populations, more segments of the population who didn't face street homelessness before. Tekenton said that there's a lack of housing supply in Bloomington. He added that the lack of available housing has created a sense of competition between families trying to find affordable homes. Because supply is low, the people who need it the most or value it the most or have enough money to get it will get it. I know that in Bloomington, housing is scarce. Even young professionals, even uh, even people in higher income brackets are having trouble finding a place. He said in Bloomington's current housing ecosystem, it's difficult to build dense enough housing while retaining affordable rent prices. It's hard to build tall enough and dense enough to make a profit and still make the rents cheap. So what you get is called filtering, where people go to the nicer, newer ones who have money and then the ones that used to be nice and new get old and are in disrepair, and those are the ones that you can afford if you have a low income now. Dr. Jill Pable is a professor in the Interior Architecture and Design Program at Florida State University. Dr. Pable is also the project lead for Design Resources for Homelessness, an online source for research-informed guidance regarding the design and construction of facilities for people experiencing homelessness. She co-authored the book, Sketching Interiors at the Speed of Thought and Interior Design, Strategies for Teaching and Learning. Pable explained how housing affordability has slipped and what that has done to the rate of homelessness across the country. Over 60% of people who rent in the United States right now are paying more than 30% of their income. And the reason that's a big deal is that's kind of a standard of, you know, you're able to pay for food and medicine and, you know, your children's needs and so forth. And it gets higher than that. You start scrimping on food and medicine and other, you know, essentials. So that's an indicator that it's not going in a great direction right now, for sure. She said she wants to elevate the visibility of the situation, saying that the housing crisis has been developing for a long time. She said that the trajectory does not look bright moving forward. However, she added that it's not too late to change course. It is certainly getting worse. But unless we start to talk about it, nothing is going to get done. So, you know, society doesn't change or turn on a dime. But I think we're starting to confront the fullness of the situation. Really, homelessness is kind of the culmination of so many societal ills, poverty, racial discrimination, violence, you know, substance abuse, dependency, you know, all kinds of things sort of come and revolve around or a consequence of being homeless. So We've got a tough nut to crack here. 
but that doesn't make the need to do so any less. Thank you for listening to the first installment of Deep Dive, Limestone Post and WFHB Investigate. Tune in next week at 5 p.m. to take a deeper dive into the housing crisis. For WFHB News, I'm Cade Young. And I'm Noelle Herhusky-Schneider. Up next, we have Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB, hosted and produced by Richard Fish. We turn to Fish for more. Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. I've been doing some traveling lately, a couple of thousand miles in my car, and that meant I had to buy gas several times in various places. I was using my credit card to keep track of my expenses, and I always have a little bump of worry about finding a gas pump that's got a credit card reader installed. These things have been around for a while, and if your card goes into a slot with an illegal reader attached, the reader reads the magnetic strip along with the gas pump and sends the information to a crook. And then some con artist is going to be able to run up all kinds of charges on your card. The early models are easy to spot. They fit over the credit card slot, and you can see something else has been added. One of the ways the credit card companies and the gas stations have been fighting this ripoff is the credit cards with a chip embedded in them. Mine are like that. You push the card in the slot and it locks while the chip is accessed and unlocks when the card is approved. It doesn't use the magnetic stripe at all. Well, some scammers have figured out how to get around that by installing a card reader device in the wires connecting the chip card circuit inside the pump itself. But that means opening the pump and then closing it up again, and that's risky. No legitimate customer ever opens up a gas pump after all. Even if they're not spotted in the act, surveillance video can catch them later. So the next step in defending the gas pumps is the tap-to-pay card reader. That's where you don't put your card in a slot at all, just tap it on a little screen on the front of the pump. I used one of those three times on my recent trip, and they worked fine. That method uses an encoded radio signal that's a whole lot harder for the thieves to read and a one-time-only security code the crooks can't know. But guess what? 
The scammers have now found a way to defeat this system. They simply drill a little hole into the contactless payment screen. That disables the tap-to-pay circuit, and the gas pump automatically defaults back to the other methods. So if you get gas at a contactless card reader pump, but the tap-to-pay function doesn't work, watch out. In that case, or if you see a little hole in the tap-to-pay screen, go tell the attendant immediately. The pump should be shut off and inspected for illegal card readers. And you should use another pump, or maybe even go to another gas station. I've been checking my credit card accounts and haven't found any problems. Whenever you're flashing your credit card around the country, you do the same. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at WFHB.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at WFHB.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com.